0: The process of trying to change your mind about a deeply held belief that has been forced upon you by society and cultural standards is often referred to as deprogramming or unlearning. Deprogramming involves challenging and dismantling the ingrained beliefs and thought patterns that may have been instilled in you by external influences such as a wider community, media, or cultural norms. These beliefs may have been internalized over time, and questioning or changing them can be an incredibly complex and challenging process, and sometimes even painful. Unlearning is a similar concept which involves actively questioning and rejecting previously accepted beliefs or behaviors that were shaped by external influences. Unlearning often requires critical thinking, something many of us have forgotten how to do or even exist in modern time, self-reflection, and exposure to new perspectives and information that might deeply challenge your previously held beliefs. Both deprogramming and unlearning are essential for personal growth and intellectual independence. Deprogramming and unlearning allow us, as individuals, to develop our own beliefs and values based upon our own authentic understanding and assessment of the world around us. It can be a transformative journey, but one that requires courage, openness, and a willingness to challenge the status quo. Think about where we would be now if incredibly brave individuals throughout the past didn't stand up to the status quo. Today, I'm going to be asking you to listen and be open to new perspectives. Perspectives that might challenge some very deeply held beliefs that you never even thought to question in the first place. But that's why conversations like this are so incredibly important. Unlearning and deprogramming the belief that mental illness is solely a biological cause within you as an individual, rather than considering systemic causes and societal factors, is an important step toward developing a more comprehensive and empathetic understanding of mental health and human psychological suffering. The fear and resistance to challenging the belief that mental illness is solely a biological or medical brain-based issue with simple solutions like medication as a cure-all can be attributed to several factors. First, one of cultural conditioning. In many societies, the medical model of mental illness has been deeply ingrained over time. The idea that mental health issues are caused by chemical imbalances in our broken brains and can be fixed with medication has become widely accepted and normalized. Challenging this deeply rooted belief can be uncomfortable and even threatening to someone's sense of stability and understanding of the world. Also, the idea of stigma and shame. Mental health stigma still exists in many societies. Admitting to having mental health challenges can lead to feelings of toxic shame, judgment, and marginalization. Accepting the idea that mental health issues may be influenced by more systemic factors and societal pressures can be seen as relinquishing control and admitting vulnerability which can be incredibly difficult for some people. Also, we're geared towards oversimplifying things and leaning towards wanting a quick fix, especially in today's society. The medical model of mental health offers a straightforward and seemingly quick cure to complex issues. Taking medication can provide relief, which may seem more appealing to some people than facing the potentially arduous and long-term process of addressing more systemic causes that may be the root cause of our psychological suffering. Another contributing factor is the lack of awareness and education. Many aren't aware of the broader sociocultural factors influencing mental health, Or the various alternative approaches to understanding and treating psychological suffering, and a lack of exposure to more diverse perspectives only serves to reinforce the dominant biological model. Also, we're scared of change. Challenging ingrained beliefs can be deeply unsettling. It's understandable that people may fear the unknown or worry about the consequences of questioning established norms. Change can be difficult and it requires a willingness to put aside these deeply held beliefs and embrace uncertainty, something most in society are not comfortable doing. Also, the idea of medicalization of mental health, the tendency to view mental health issues through a purely medical lens, can overshadow the importance of more holistic approaches such as one-to-one therapy, social and communal support, lifestyle changes, and addressing deeply dysfunctional societal factors that are at play. This incredibly narrow focus on the medicalization of mental health can lead to an overemphasis on medication as the only solution. And That brings us to another topic, which is the financial interests. Many don't want to discuss this, but the pharmaceutical industry plays a massive role in shaping the medical model of mental health. There is an extensive amount of proof, research, and documentation of the deeply held financial ties in promoting medication-based solutions, which has a massive influence on public perception and acceptance. So, has psychiatry as a profession lost its way? By not seriously confronting societal sources of psychological suffering like anxiety, depression, and other mental health symptoms, many across a variety of professions posit that the American mental health institutions that are trying to help us have actually become part of the problem, rather than the solution. Those fighting for this belief have become part of movements, and sometimes these movements are referred to as critical psychology. Critical psychology is a perspective on psychology that draws extensively on critical theory. Critical psychology challenges the assumptions, theories, and methods of mainstream psychology and attempts to apply psychological understandings in different ways often looking towards social change as a means of preventing and understanding psychopathology. Critical psychologists and those who support them believe that mainstream psychology and psychiatry fail to consider how power differences and discrimination between social classes and groups can impact an individual's or group's mental and physical well-being. Mainstream psychology does this only in part by attempting to explain behavior at the individual level, right? When you have a personality disorder, there is something wrong with you. There is not something wrong with society at large. However, mainstream psychology largely ignores institutional racism, post-colonialism, and deficits in social justice for minority groups based on differences in observable characteristics such as gender, ethnicity, religion, religious minority, sexual orientation, or disability. This idea of critical psychology has given rise to another movement sometimes referred to as anti-psychiatry. Anti or critical psychiatry is a movement based on the view that psychiatric treatment is often more damaging than helpful to patients, highlighting controversies about psychiatry. Objections include the reliability of psychiatric diagnosis, the questionable effectiveness and harm associated with psychiatric medications, and the failure of psychiatry to demonstrate any disease treatment mechanism for psychiatric medication effects As well as legal concerns about human rights and civil freedom being nullified by the presence of diagnosis. From a historical perspective, critiques of psychiatry came to light after focus on the extreme harms associated with electroconvulsive treatment or insulin shock therapy. The term anti-psychiatry is in dispute, and it's often used to dismiss all critics or questioners of psychiatry, many of whom agree that a specialized role of helper for people in emotional distress may at times be appropriate and allow for individual choice around treatment decisions. Beyond concerns about effectiveness, anti-psychiatrists question the philosophical and ethical underpinnings of psychotherapy and psychoactive medication seeing them as shaped by social and political concerns rather than the autonomy and integrity of the individual mind. They may believe that judgments on matters of sanity should be the prerogative of the philosophical mind and that the mind should not be a medical concern. Some activists reject the psychiatric notion of mental illness altogether, Anti-psychiatry considers psychiatry a coercive instrument of oppression due to an unequal power relationship between doctor and patient and a highly subjective diagnostic process. Involuntary commitment to psychiatric hospitals is an important issue in the critical psychiatry movement. The decentralized movement of critical psychology and critical psychiatry has been active in various forms for over two centuries now. In the 1960s, for example, there were many challenges to psychoanalysis and mainstream psychiatry where the very basis of psychiatric practice was characterized as repressive and controlling. Many prominent psychiatrists themselves identified with the critical psychiatry movement. For example, David Grand Cooper was a South African-born psychiatrist and theorist who was prominent in the anti-psychiatry movement. Cooper used the term anti-psychiatry in 1967, and he wrote a book, Psychiatry and Anti-Psychiatry, in 1971. The word anti-psychiatry was already used in Germany in 1904. Thomas Sivansas Saz, was a Hungarian-American academic and psychiatrist. He served for most of his career as professor of psychiatry at the State University of New York Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. He was also a distinguished lifetime fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a life member of the American Psychoanalytic Association. And He was best known as a social critic of the moral and scientific foundations of psychiatry, as what he saw as the social control aims of medicine in modern society, as well as scientism. Saz introduced the definition of mental illness as a myth in the book, The Myth of Mental Illness, which he released in 1961. The critical psychology and psychiatry movement continues to influence thinking about psychiatry and psychology both within and outside of the fields, Particularly in terms of the relationship between providers of treatment and those receiving treatment. Contemporary issues include freedom versus coercion, nature versus nurture, and the right to just be and feel differently than the norm. Today, you'll be hearing my conversation with Bruce E. Levine a practicing clinical psychologist, often at odds with the mainstream of his profession. Bruce writes and speaks about how society, culture, politics, and psychology intersect. He has been in practice in his career for more than three decades. Howard Zinn, the author of A People's History of the United States, says of Bruce, it's always refreshing to find someone who stands at the edge of his profession and dissects its failures with a critical eye, refusing to be deceived by its pretensions. Bruce Levine condemns the cold, technical approach to mental health and, to our benefit, looks for deeper solutions. Bruce is a regular contributor to Counterpunch, Truthout, Salon, Alternet, Mad in America, Z Magazine, Op-Ed News, and The Huffington Post. His articles and interviews have been published in The New York Times, Skeptic, Ad Busters, The Ecologist, High Times, and numerous other magazines, and he's contributed chapters to the Military-Industrial Complex at 50, Writing Without Formula, Perspectives on Diseases and Disorders, and Alternatives Beyond Psychiatry. Levine is on the editorial advisory board of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry, and he's also on the medical and scientific advisory board of the Natural Center for Youth Law. He's also an editorial advisor for the Icarus Project and Freedom Center Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. A longtime activist in the mental health treatment reform movement, Bruce is a member of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry and Mind Freedom. Dr. Levine has presented talks and workshops to diverse organizations throughout North America. Bruce was born in 1956, grew up in Rockaway in New York City, graduated from Queens College of the City University of New York, and received his PhD in Clinical Psychology from the University of Cincinnati. Bruce is also a prolific author in his own right. His most recent book, released in 2022, is A Profession Without Reason. The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Freethinking, and Radical Enlightenment. Bruce also released a book in 2018 called Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian. In this book, Bruce describes how the capacity to comply with abusive authority is humanity's fatal flaw But fortunately, there are anti-authoritarians out there, people comfortable with questioning the legitimacy of authority and resisting its illegitimate forms. However, as his book Resisting Illegitimate Authority reveals, these rebels, those who are brave enough to challenge the status quo, are regularly scorned, shunned, financially punished, psychopathologized, criminalized, and sometimes even assassinated. In this book, Bruce profiles a diverse group of U.S. anti-authoritarians from Thomas Paine to Harriet Tubman, Malcolm X, Lenny Bruce, and Noam Chomsky in order to glean useful lessons from their lives. Resisting illegitimate authority provides political, spiritual, Philosophical and psychological tools To help those suffering violence and vilification In a society whose most ardent cheerleaders for freedom Are often its most obedient and docile citizens Discussing anti-authoritarian approaches to depression Relationships and parenting Bruce makes it clear that far from being a disease Disobedience may be our last hope So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to present to you my conversation with Bruce. It is by far one of the most engaging, nourishing, and validating conversations I have had the ability to have on my podcast and I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to speak with him. It feels important to state that neither Bruce nor myself are anti-psychiatry, or anti medication. But we do believe that there is a serious imbalance in the way that we view psychological suffering. Psychiatry and psychology claim that they are ruled by a biopsychosocial model. However, it's clear that we are skewed way towards the biological of this model, and balance is deeply, deeply needed. So sit back Relax and get ready to challenge some of your most deeply held beliefs with someone who has spent 30 years fighting on the front lines of this fight. I present to you Dr.
3: Bruce
1: Levine. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm sitting here with my guests. Bruce Levine. And Bruce, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself?
2: Okay, I'm a uh, clinical psychologist, and I still keep a part time practice. I've been in practice for over 35 years. But increasingly, over the over the last 15 years, I do a lot more writing and speaking and doing stuff like this, which is a lot of fun for me. Um, And I would say in general, I, I think your listeners will get more clarity as we go along here, but I've become sort of increasingly embarrassed by my profession. Uh, I mean, there were some, when the profession that I went into when I be, got into a graduate school for clinical psychology many, many years ago was sort of half cool and half little messed up. And I would say right now, uh, the profession is mostly screwed up. And there's a lot of reasons, hopefully, we'll get into why that's happened. But uh, I would say the major word for me to describe my relationship with my profession, and it used to be more like psychiatry, a lot of clinical psychologists used to have, there used to be a great distance between psychologists and psychiatrists. But that's that gap is closed so I, I say nowadays I'm, I'm just pretty much embarrassed by what the direction of the whole profession and I think although there's certainly people out there I, I want to make clear uh, I, they're dissident psychiatrists a handful I probably know everyone in the world because <laughs> there's not takes a lot of courage to be a dissident psychiatrist and there are more dissident psychologists social workers every city has a few folks um and you know there's people out there i I respect but mostly the majority of the people in the procession the selection process of how people get in the profession the socialization process all the things that happen to it to people in it by and large if you're just going with the flow and you're a mental health professional likely you're going to be either non-productive or counterproductive that's my experience but hopefully we'll get into more detail on that later
1: Oh, we'll absolutely get into detail on that. And what you've described really tracks with my experience. I spent about a year and a half in a graduate program, pursuing a potential degree and wanting to work as a practicing therapist myself. And after experiencing some of what you describe, I kind of backed off, right? Which is what led me down the road of maybe doing a podcast instead of working in these professions. and. I just can't count the amount of therapists, social workers, psychologists that have written to me under the condition of anonymity, right? Saying that they are shocked at the practices that they have to engage in, the beliefs that they have to perpetuate, the hoops that they have to jump through in order to provide care for their patients. And so I think it's incredibly admirable for anyone who comes out and speaks out against the systems because- It's a really tricky thing to be in the helping professions for mental health right now, it seems.
2: Right. And, you know, your point that they're coming to you anonymously, it's (laughs) it's pathetic, right? I mean, that they're so afraid. And that's a core piece of why the mental health profession doesn't help a lot of people. Because if you're fear-based, if you don't have enough courage to at least talk about What's problematic about your own profession? What's the chances you're gonna have enough courage to like talk to a family who are doing some problematic things with a teenager, who there's nothing essentially mentally ill about them, but they're unhappy for a variety of reasons. And how much courage are you going to be able to have to talk to a parent and say, hey, you know, I'm sure you're doing the best you can here, but this kid's not getting their needs met. Are you going to, are you going to be too afraid that they're going to fire you and you're going to lose a customer? Are you going to be too afraid? Maybe they're going to go to your licensing board or they're going to sue you. And so you see, it's a very... The core of, it, of the problem of the profession and is it, it, that it's very fear-based. And mm. when you're in emotional turmoil, I've been there myself, the last thing in the world, because you're already afraid, you're afraid of what's going on, the last thing in the world is that you need somebody who is fear-based. And unfortunately, the whole selection process and the sol- socialization process for mental health professionals produces fear-based people. And again, I want to repeat: there are people who transcend that, but there are more people like you who quit. And <laughs> when I was in graduate yeah. school, my friends who were the best therapists, who would have been great psychotherapists, they just couldn't handle the bullshit and they just quit. And there are very few people who hung in there, and uh, and went through the whole process. And are people I would go to myself if I if I was emotionally struggling.
0: Yes, I mean one of the main things that I would look for in a practitioner now. I mean, most of the people that I'd like to
1: go to that practice within like psychoanalytic frameworks or maybe even like Jungian depth psychology things, they're too expensive for me to ever see, right? The only thing I could do in terms of uh, insurance is to get a label, a psychiatric label, and then maybe get thrown into some short-term CBT, DBT type of program that has quote-unquote proof that it quote-unquote works, right? Have you ever heard the phrase... Um, a patient cured is a customer lost.
2: Right, right. I mean, and that (laughs) is a big problem of the profession. That's part of the reason people who knew me when I was your age and even younger said like, like, they heard me moan and groan all the time about the whole idea of like how problematic sort of the financial relationship was in being a therapist for exactly what you're talking about and, and other reasons as well. And so again, People who are who are good doing, you know, who are therapists, they constantly have to sort of work against their own financial self-interest, which some yes. people do. All right, yes. it's not impossible to do, but it goes against the grain, right? It and does. so, you know, there, there's just a lot of problems having to do with fear and money and control and all kinds of stuff that go along with the go along with the profession, and that's why there's very so few. Uh, good 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 therapists out there for people and so one thing we can make this point real clear is if, if you've been failed and one of the really sad tragic things to happen is people try they want to start with some talk therapy and yeah. they try and it fails and maybe it fails a couple of times and then somebody convinces them well then you need to be on medication and, <laughs> and the medication fails and the next thing they know somebody's trying to convince them to go take some electroshock and so what happens is, is all these failed kind of Treatments, you know, (laughs) lead people to more kind of uh, what I would call violent treatments, okay? Mm. So, it, there's, there's a lot, I think, part of, I think, for a lot of your listeners out there, it might be hard for them to think like, well, how could a whole institution be deeply problematic? And that's where a little bit of American history comes in hand. There's not a point in American history that you could look back where there wasn't some major institution that we now look back and say, like, oh my God, and I'm <laughs> not, I don't just have to talk about slavery. We could talk about the House on American Activities Committee. We can talk about right now we have prisons for profit. So there's always been institutions in american history that people look back at 50 years 70 years from now and i think that's kind of what's going to happen with eventually with the whole mental health profession that they're going to certainly there are some people out there who are highly skilled at helping people who are having emotional struggling behavioral disturbances but the profession itself uh, makes it really highly problematic for those people to to do something that would be helpful
1: Absolutely. You know, you saying that what comes up for me is a really good friend that I have. Her sister is, has been in and out of psychiatric facilities. Their family, by the way, is incredibly affluent. So they have an abundance of financial resources. She's been to every single professional at the highest level. She's been on every medication possible. She is chronically suicidal and she's been labeled. What are the favorite phrase treatment resistant, Right. right? What do you think about the phrase treatment-resistant?
2: Right. It's one more kind of uh, abuse, I would call it one more traumatization that my profession does, just because they can't help somebody. (laughs) Therefore, what they do is instead of saying, well, sorry, I I just wasn't good enough to help you. How many times, how many professionals are going to do that? They say like, well, it's not my fault. You must be treatment resistant. And it's another shaming, right? And so you've got a lot of people who are already, you know, suffering emotionally, having all these problems, depressed, anxious, substance abuse, etc., because they're already feeling defective, they're already maybe have wounds and shame, and then you have some profession who's incompetent, who can't help you, coming along and saying, it's your fault, (laughs) you know, you're treatment resistant. And so, I mean, part of this stuff... Uh, you're going to hear from me. I hope your listeners understand in, in order to survive as long as I had, you develop you develop a kind of a, a dark humor about this whole thing or else it, the whole thing gets so depressing for yourself. So uh, you don't know, they I say don't, I, you have I don't to... Mean to sound cavalier. <laughs> I really. I, but that's the only way I survive here with a dark sense of humor about how pathetic my profession is.
1: I mean, they say you have to laugh or you'd cry, right? Right. <laughs> well, speaking of why we're we're actually in conversation now for my listeners I read an article that Bruce wrote in May 2023 so right now if you're listening to us in the future right now it's June 2023 and when I saw this article pop up and I read it it was just great I spend a lot of time reading critical psychiatry pieces and so this stuff is nothing new to me, but I thought the way that you put it forward in your article was so compelling. And I think more needs to be said about it. So let's jump into it. You know, the article is called once radical critiques of psychiatry are now mainstream. So what remains taboo? And so I looked up for my listeners, the definition of taboo, right? The definition of taboo is a social or religious custom prohibiting or forbidding discussion of a particular practice or forbidding association with a particular person, place, thing, or idea. And so As I mentioned, this article really blew my mind. It was incredibly well-researched. And I just wanted to know, I was going to ask you what compelled you to to pick this topic, but it sounds like we've already covered that. So you start the article with this really powerful statement, and I'm just going to read it to my listeners. 20 years ago, one would have been labeled as anti-psychiatry for acknowledging that one, psychiatry's treatment outcomes are abysmal and not getting better. Two, the serotonin imbalance theory of depression is untrue. And three, psychiatry's diagnostic manual, the DSM, is scientifically invalid. Yet today, these acknowledgements, which don't threaten the ruling class, are stated by the psychiatry establishment and reported by the mainstream media. There are, however, critiques that continue to be taboo for the media to report. So, the three critiques that you describe in the opening of this article, in my opinion, have only within the last few years started to creep their way into the mainstream, but not enough, in my opinion. And many of my listeners may not have even be a, be aware of them. Some of my long-term listeners know I've been banging on about this forever, but for someone who's just tuning in now. I still receive emails, voicemails, and comments from people who are seeing mental health practitioners who tell them that their psychological suffering is due to a chemical imbalance in their brain, and that can be only corrected with medication. So for those who might not be aware of some of the major developments in these areas over the last few years, can you speak a bit about how the serotonin imbalance theory of depression is starting to really fall apart and why you think practitioners still continue to mention it to patients?
2: Okay, so the chemical imbalance theory, uh, there were two major ones, but the one people mostly know about is that low levels of serotonin are associated with depression. But there was another one that was also discarded in the 1980s, 1990s, about high levels of dopamine being associated with with schizophrenia. But going with the serotonin depression one, we knew – the researchers people who were looking at the research by the 1990s at the latest there was a lot of real interesting research that took a look at trying to associate levels of serotonin levels in your cerebrospinal fluids and you know all kinds of ways people they would deplete your serotonin levels there's a lot of interesting research that was done to see if there was any association with low levels of serotonin and depression and it was ruled out it was discarded so this was well known by the end of the 1990s there's a book of, back in 19 late 1990s a guy named elliot valenstein at university of Michigan wrote a book called blaming the brain so this is well-known stuff and what had happened what happened was though in the mid-1990s uh the drug commercials started to appear on television so the drug companies have so much financial power that they have political power to get the politicians to put these drug commercials on television and so if you listen to a lot of those drug commercials um you know that started in the late 1990s, where where these they were pushing these SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, to correct this mythical chemical imbalance of low levels of serotonin. What they would say they would really they would say may be related to low levels of, of serotonin. They would do this may be related when they knew there was no it had already been discarded. But what they knew was it was the dream, it was the fantasy for marketers and advertisers for these drug companies because prior to the 1990s prior to these SSRIs coming out very few Americans were going to be taking uh, drugs for their depression they they knew that they they knew that, that that for a lot of folks they knew that even that if you waited long enough <laughs> statistics show that within a year like 80 85 percent of people the depression goes away there was a lot of reasons people were wary of like taking uh, antidepressants so the drug com- companies had to do something monumental to make people feel that they were irresponsible really for not taking these SSRIs like they were like a diabetic who wasn't taking insulin and that was the analogy that people had in their head well once they had that in their head and once these commercials started rolling you know psychiatrists got a lot more prestige all of a sudden people felt like they had something to offer so they loved it the drug companies loved it mainstream media by the way they loved it too because all of a sudden they were getting flooded with lots of money from drug companies and so they were reluctant to talk about how that this theory had been discarded so there were a lot of reasons why the general public and, and people in the general public there in New audience don't feel stupid because the, the studies show uh, they haven't done a poll on this in a while but the last poll that I looked at the vast majority 80 85 percent percent of people out there believe in this that this thing is true and from my experience not only do the general public a lot of doctors believe that so primary care doctors who are the most more than psychiatrists are the ones who are prescribing these uh, these psychiatric drugs they a lot of them believe it. i haven't seen any polls on it but anecdotally i bet you even to this day even if all the stuff that's now come out we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit in 2022 my guess is a lot of people still believe it now so it's like what happens is in the great uh, scientist Carl Sagan used to talk about the great bamboozle. He used to talk about once you become attached to a certain belief, it's really hard to ever let go of it. If you've heard something a thousand times, it's really hard. So that's what happened. But, but But as we move along here, by around 2011 one of the first establishment psychiatry figures that i'm aware of started to distance them himself from this so a guy named ronald pies who is editor emeritus at psychiatric times he wrote this piece literally calling this uh, chemical imbalance theory a urban legend. That was the exact phrase that he used. And he said, no well-informed psychiatrist has ever believed this. And, and it was like, oh, really? That's, that's really interesting. And then the other interesting thing that for me happened in the next year, I don't know if your audience know, knows about Elise Spiegel, who's over at NPR. She's a journalist there. And she's really interesting, Elise Spiegel. Her grandfather, John Spiegel, was a, a president of the American Psychiatric Association but she finds out after she'd been 16 17 years old she's probably an upper middle class kind of kid who'd been taken over to Johns Hopkins for heart depression they told her the same story that everybody else hears that your depression is caused by low levels of serotonin and she got put on Prozac and later on as a journalist she finds out hey this stuff's not true so she starts to investigate like what the hell is this all about and really she talks to people who literally knew the researchers who knew this wasn't true and they had reasons why they wanted to perpetuate this thing in their own head it was like a noble lie if if people believed this stuff they would feel better about their depression they would take their medication so it was all you could call it a bullshit or a noble lie depending on what kind of person you are I call it bullshit so anyways so that that came out but still most people hadn't heard about this was just one story on NPR then the big thing event that happened in 2022 a year ago was a dissident psychiatrist uh Joanna Moncrief out of uh England who I, I correspond with she's you know she put out this review with a bunch of other co-authors that looked at hundreds of studies on this relationship between serotonin levels and depression and she said there's just like no evidence of it so here is the interesting thing that had well two interesting things is for whatever reason the mainstream media picked up uh, Joanna's r- review article and so it went all over the place Russell Brand started doing YouTube videos hilarious you could find it it's some, you know like they, it's it's called like they, they fucking lied to me is like this is the name of his thing it's a slurious I recommend if you need to, if your audience needs a laugh and um, but it got out there and so the interesting thing was what did psychiatry do at the establishment level they did not disagree. They did not uh, say like, "Well, this is wrong." What they did was they they made fun of Joanna. <laughs> they said, "What is she going to do next? Disprove the black bile theory?" They mocked her, and so you know, this is this is for me a lot of what I, I'm trying to convey to folks is not only are these guys wrong, but they're violent. You know, when they get so here and now what they're doing is really gaslighting the whole general public. They're saying, we never told you this stuff. And it's like if all of you people believe this it's because you're stupid. Now, that's for me, that's gaslighting. So I go through this story with folks here. One thing is like, again, you know, since they've heard a thousand times about this chemical imbalance theory, I guess they need to hear it at least a 100 times that it's that it's not true. But the other part of it is it, it really speaks to the level of duplicity and 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 really i would say psychological violence that the profession is involved in and this is this is a hugely important thing because it really threw people off track i mean when in the 1960s 70s 80s there's all kinds of interesting reasons people would be talking about people about why people get depressed so for example we knew it was an interpersonal event we knew there were studies that i quote in one of my earlier books on depression showing that the majority of depressed women you ask them what they think the thoughts of their depression was it was their unhappy marriage you know so we knew all kinds of things we knew about trauma we knew there was a lot of different things that had to do with basically enormous pain is as associated with depression we know for example that if you've got financial pains if you're involved in the criminal justice system if you've got if you're in poverty they're much more likely to be suicidal and depressed. so there's a lot of things we knew about the relationship between financial emotional all kinds of pains in your life and depression and this chemical imbalance mumbo-jumbo bullshit really derail people all right from a lot of different things so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a summary of the chemical imbalance theory of depression
1: it absolutely does and you know so much came up for me and i was writing a few notes when you were speaking there is so much gold in in what you just shared you know uh, what the first thing was of when you said you know They've always put in these depression leaflets. It may help, right? It may it, it increase your serotonin levels. So they've always danced around this. And it reminds me of when I worked in PR about how careful people are with language about skincare anything like this. It may reduce fine lines and wrinkles, right? And it reminds me about now how they're, skincare for women is like, it's promised to reduce the aging process. Right. And what are they, what are they pushing now? Seven step skincare routines. Why not? Cause it makes your skin better because it forces you to buy more products. And it's just, it's kind of the same thing, right? We're being duped when in reality, all of these multiple products actually damages your skin barrier and then makes you need, it makes your skin like more addicted to those products. And I am so glad you brought up the work of Dr. Moncrief because I just watched, and I'm not sure if you've seen it yet or my listeners have seen it, but the BBC just did a brilliant documentary. um, The panorama on BBC just did a whole profile on the SSRI stuff and what's going on in the UK. And Dr. Moncrief was obviously featured as the main person that they were interviewing here. And I've been following very closely much of the blowback she's been receiving. And it just reminds me of witch trial shit, you know what I mean? People right. are, are jumping on her. And, um, I thought you'd find this really interesting because there's another psychologist named James Barnes. Who's pretty, if you know all of these critical psychiatry people, he's very, very active on Twitter, trying to really shoot down some of the, um, blowback that Dr. Moncrief is receiving. And just yesterday I was on there and someone was replied to a tweet um Elon Musk actually just tweeted about depression yesterday and Dr. Moncrief replied to his tweet and said great Elon I'm glad you're bringing this up but like please see my paper you know that debunks the serotonin hypothesis and there were probably five or six psychiatrists that attacked her on Twitter saying Oh, haven't you seen all of the papers that have come out refuting all of your evidence? And James Barnes replied with this screenshot that he took. Someone's put together a list of conflict of interest of the main people that have been writing these uh, basically rebuttals against Joanna Moncrief's research. And guess where all their ties are? Pharma. All these psychiatrists that are jumping on her trying to take down her research have all of these conflicts of interest within big pharma. They've been paid by pharmaceutical companies and it's against their interests for this uh, serotonin theory to be refuted in a mainstream way
2: right i mean one of the other things that's uh, incredibly <laughs> embarrassing about the mental health profession is and this is also this has gone increasingly so in, in the entire society is that just how the conflicts of interest uh are just seen as more and more acceptable so another thing that you're a is i really you're, you're i'm talking to folks who, who might be not aware of that in 2008 um so this is a while ago now they had Congressional hearings on psychiatry and their relationship with drug companies and What they found was that just about every significant thought leader were taking huge amounts of money So one of the poster boys and by now by no means the only one was a guy who just recently died this guy named Joseph Biederman out of Harvard Who be, you know who had taken 1.6 million dollars from drug companies over a six seven year period and he Joseph Biederman is the father of uh, pediatric bipolar disorder so because of him, from the mid 1990s to the early 2000s, you have a 40-fold, 40-fold increase in this pediatric bipolar disorder, which for me is insanity. How the hell could you have a three, four-year-old diagnosed with bipolar disorder? And you looked at the symptoms again. You want to cry or laugh? We get back to this cry or laughing, and it's like, well, they they they're intensely silly and intensely happy. I'm right, right, exactly. I see My, your audience can't see your reaction, but I can see Molly's yeah. reaction. It's exactly my reaction. It's like, yeah. are you people fucking out of your mind? And the same Literally. thing with preschool ADHD, you know, it's like, if you talk too loud, you're ADHD. If you talk too fast, you're a But So it's insanity. So, so, but that was it. There was, back to those congressional hearings, they also found relationships between a lot of the major institutions and drug companies. So American Psychiatric Association and, and relationships to drug companies and so on and on. And so what ended up happening was, and this is the thing that happens in American society, you find out that all these politicians are on the take from giant corporations, and so they think they can solve this by just having them disclose it, have these sunshine laws. So that's what happened. We had in 2013 there were these sunshine laws that all, that that doctors had to report their, what they were making and drug companies had to report their re- financial relationships. So we know now 75% of psychiatrists are on the take at some level maybe not, not a million, there's only about a 60 or so taking over a million dollars from drug companies, the big time thought leaders, but up 75% of them are taking are taking something. And so this is what a guy you know a a, a investigative journalist, a guy named Robert Whitaker, is calls as an institutional institutional corruption. And so there's a lot of things in life that are legal, but they shouldn't be. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the same with politicians getting lobbied to be able to control them So that this is what happens when you have enough money, you can kind of create the laws, you know And and so these these psychiatrists feel like well, we're doing nothing wrong. We've disclosed it And so at the end of all of these big studies They say well, they have financial relationships with these drug companies like that means nothing like that <laughs> So that that's part of of the many reasons why this profession has become embarrassing Like I say it would be far more embarrassing embarrassing um, to be a psychiatrist, but it's embarrassing enough to be a psychologist.
1: God, ain't that the truth. You know, it's interesting that you bring up some of these major players. And I already spoke about Thomas Insel. The next question I had for you from your article was, you wrote about treatment outcome failure and the invalidity of the DSM. So you you wrote, cause I'm just gonna read a short excerpt. In 2011, Thomas Insel, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, from 2002 to 2015, he acknowledged, quote, whatever we've been doing for five decades, it ain't working. When I look at the numbers, the number of suicides, the number of disabilities, the mortality data, it's abysmal and it's not getting any better. Key members of the establishment psychiatry now acknowledge that the DSM psychiatry's diagnostic manual is invalid. Thomas Insel, when director in 2013, stated that the DSM's diagnostic categories lack validity, and he announced that NIMH will be Reorienting its research away from DSM categories. Then, in, in 2022, his book, Healing in Cell, stated that DSM has created a common language, but much of that language has not been validated by science. The chair of the 1994 DSM 4 Task Force, Alan Francis, acknowledged in 2010 there's no definition of a mental disorder. It's bullshit. You just can't define it. Not only does this DSM lack validity, in 2012, Francis detailed how DSM diagnoses lack reliability as different clinicians rating the same patient routinely disagree on a diagnosis. So these statements are pretty damning, and they're from people at the highest level, you know, and it's frightening for those of us who sought help from professionals in times of extreme vulnerability, trusting them, you know, to guide and advise us, and ended up with, Diagnostic labels that members of the committees themselves admit are, quote, bullshit, you know, and Thomas Insel has been one of the most vocal of these. I myself received three to four different disorder labels and different medications, depending on the practitioner I saw. And if he said just in 2013 that the DSM will be reorienting its research away from DSM categories, it's been nearly 10 years since he made this statement, and it seems like there's more, not less focus on diagnostic labels. Why do you think that is, Bruce?
2: Right. Well, I mean, two things. Just so to underline about, we're not talking about radical, critical psychiatrists. <laughs> we're talking Thomas Insel. You can't be more establishment psychiatrists. The, guy, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health is sort of like the king of psychiatry. And the other dude we we're talking about is Alan Francis. He was task force director of the earlier DSM four, which came out in 1994. We're up to the latest one that came out, DSM five, is 2013. So these are you can't. These are the establishment of the establishment saying that. So the the back, you know, to answer is like, well, why is this DSM still around? Again, um, it's about money and it's about politics. The American Psychiatric Association is the guild of America's psychiatrists. And they publish the DSM. It is their big moneymaker because every they, when they revise it, all these clinicians, psychiatrists, social workers, psychologists, everybody has to go out and get themselves a new expensive DSM. But it's even more than that. It's, it's the basis of their prestige. It's their basis of them wanting... The prestige in America, okay, is, is to be con- considered a medical doctor. And, and, and so this, this is their diagnostic manual that for them proves we're just like all these other medical doctors there. So there's money, politics, prestige issues, why this thing still exists. And it really is really hysterical. There was kind of a sort of political compromise that was made after Insel said, like, we got to abandon the DSM. Why didn't it go away? Well, and, and they came up with this bizarre compromise. Well, we're going to, you know, at the NIMH, well, we're going to try to come up with other categories for research, but clinically we're going to still use this invalid, unreliable uh, uh, instrument for for uh for diagnostic purposes and, and the other thing too for your audience i guess if they if they haven't taken psychology 101 here or they've forgotten it let me explain the difference between with validity and reliability so validity just in simple terms means does, does, does something of any value does it make sense so the example i use uh, uh, routinely to describe invalidity is like an 18 Fifties, there is a Louisiana physician, a guy named Samuel Cartwright, who, again, trying to maintain the status quo for the plantation owners, said like, well, these slaves who are running away, they suffer a mental illness called a droppetomania, and so clearly nowadays, you would hope everybody in America realized, well, that's invalid, that makes no sense. It's just something, you know, <laughs> that's just a name that that has no scientific value the unreliability is is like even if you believe all of these dsm mental illnesses from borderline personality disorder to bipolar to adhd to oppositional defiance even if you believe you say you know the you you believe in them they're they're unreliable which means that you cannot get agreement so you take the same person goes to several different clinicians they either come up they come up with no diagnosis or different diagnoses and so in and and there's a, there was actually one fun study in the DSM4 they sort of changed this but DSM4 if you had bizarre delusions just one symptom that was good enough to be labeled schizophrenic so they went around and they asked 50 senior psychiatrists to define what to, to be able to like agree on what was bizarre and they could not agree on what was bizarre right because again all of these things are based on language and communication people have different ideas about what all of these things mean so you have an instrument this is really important for folks to understand it called the dsm which is the bible literally called psychiatry's diagnostic bible that is both invalid and unreliable for scientists that makes it Garbage, all right, and so therefore everything you do with garbage is garbage in, garbage out. So if you uh, try to associate garbage with, you know, with genes or or any parts of the brain, it, it's it's all it doesn't it's bullshit. You know, it doesn't it's of no value. And so we're talking about, and that's what, and this is what's scary for psychiatry is that it's not just they're making some mistakes with their, it's like their underlying core paradigms here are are really much closer to religious constructs than they are to scientific ones.
0: That's that.
1: It's it's all based in ideology, right? And I've heard so often that, you know, the DSM, it wanted psychiatrists wanted to play with the big boys, right? They wanted to be considered medical doctors. And so what? It makes sense if they try to convince society and everyone else that psychological suffering is a medical problem, right? My personality disorder is like a disease and the best I can hope for is for my diseased cancerous personality to go into remission of some kind, right? It just, it doesn't make sense. I think when you view it like that and people are starting to wake up to that, you know, later, later in your article, you even move into, um, critiques of psychiatry that still feel forbidden to talk about because it's interesting what we've discussed up to this point is in your article the parts that you say are like these are now that we're talking about the serotonin imbalance the the treatment outcome failure the um you know just the very fact of like the invalidity of the dsm these things are starting to become more mainstream but even then they need to be more widely talked about, which is why we've discussed it. But what I found really, really interesting about your article for myself, because as you know, like I spend a lot of time reading this stuff. So I've heard some of these things before, some of my listeners may have not, but some of the stuff I hadn't even heard before is what you get into later in your article. And you wrote, it's taboo to ask this question. Has viewing our emotional suffering and behavioral disturbances as medical disorders and illnesses been helpful or harmful? Thus, the mainstream media rarely reports the empirical research that challenges psychiatry's essential paradigm, its so-called medical model. In contrast to psychiatry's medical model, other models of emotional suffering and behavioral disturbances don't assume that a medical illness is causing emotional suffering or disturbing behaviors. Non-medical models conclude that there are many reasons that have nothing to do with medical illness as to why, for example, a child does not pay attention and is disruptive, and such non-medical medical models conclude that there are many reasons that have nothing to do with brain defects as to why an individual might be hearing voices and having bizarre beliefs. Why do you think that the medical model of psychiatry has had such a stranglehold on the way we view emotional and psychological suffering, despite all of this evidence against it, as well as all these poor treatment outcomes?
2: Well, we've already covered a few of the areas, which for me are sort of actually the least interesting because they're so obvious one mm. is that psychiatry needs the medical model to maintain their prestige in society as real doctors okay and two mm-hmm. the drug companies are making a ton of money off of it and three the mainstream media is making a ton of money off of these drug companies advertising so those are those are some of the more obvious uh, answers to it but I think the more interesting Re, re, there's more interesting reasons than that. Okay, that that mm-hmm. are going to make it harder, even harder, to finally get rid of something that's obviously hasn't worked. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things in society that obviously don't are not working that make no sense that stick around because of these political financial reasons. So the next yep. level that we get into society are if you look at the kind of both at the the lowest levels and the highest levels of society, there's there's psychological, um, um, emotional, financial needs. So at, at one at the at lowest level, at sort of the micro level, you take a look at some families out there who there's a member of their family who, let's say, they're depressed, they're not paying attention, they're they're uh, you know doing doing stuff that is not fitting in. They're creating a lot of discomfort and tension for everyone around them. Well, back in the 70s and 80s, the profession that I went into, which I say was only half screwed up and half okay, was talking a lot more about, the okay part was talking a lot more about family systems theories. They were talking, it was routine, it wasn't radical to say that that person who is being labeled as mentally ill really is what we would call, and was a common term back then, the IP, the identified patient, the scapegoated person, the only person in the family who had enough guts to say, hey, maybe this is an unhappy family. Maybe mom and dad really don't like each other. Maybe they're about ready to get a divorce. Everybody else was keeping that quiet. And they were, act quote, acting out and, and, and voicing that, maybe in not, not the most mature way. And that was being labeled as mental illness. So people would talk about that. So what ended up happening <coughs> was that, you know in the, along with the drug companies and psychiatry there was another force out there that realized we can exploit a whole bunch of parents who are shame based who really don't want to deal with the fact that their families are not so happy. And and that we can tell them like they're they're really great people that there's nothing the only reason why their kids are not paying attention in school or suicidal or or having bizarre thoughts or whatever is is that they have this disease. It has nothing to do with the family, it has nothing to do with parents. And so and those people who are calling those bad people are parent blaming and parent shaming and they and they, and they should go to hell or something like that. And so this was the this is how things with drug Company support were created like NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness Okay, which was Like their their major agenda was Like stop parent blaming, stop Parent shaming, and this is really tragic Because I talk to parents all the time who, realize, who really are trying their best Sometimes to help their kids, but they realize You know, there's some kind of a personality Mismatch here, maybe they're kind of Doctor, lawyer, what I would call normie Kind of parents, and they got some bohemian Goth kind of kid, and they're going like wow and and they're really cool enough to say you know i don't think there's anything essentially wrong with my kid but i just don't understand them and we're and, and the kid's not feeling loved because you know and so there were those kind of cool parents out there but there were also a lot of other parents out there who were quite vulnerable to being exploited with this kind of medical disease idea so that's one level okay um and if you want me to stop and you want to comment on that, I'll go. I'll go to the bigger level uh, next here. If unless you want to, you know. Get no, to,
0: please continue. Okay,
2: so the next bigger level, okay, and which is what I talk about in that article that you're reading. Is at the highest levels of society Let's call them the ruling class You know, let's call them, like, not just the 1%, the one-tenth, the one-percent We're talking about the, you know, the Be- Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, you know, the people who are At yes. the top of the hierarchy The
1: Rupert Murdoch There you the, go, there you go, yeah. there yes. you go
2: There you go. All yep. these guys who are at the top of the hierarchy Who are having a good old time, you know <laughs> And they like, they want to keep the status quo The way it is, all right
1: They're, so, like, they're like the daddies of the ultimate Dysfunctional family, family
0: system, and we're all all the identified patients. Right,
2: right They don't want to deal with the fact They, <laughs> they want to think like Well, like business at Amazon You want to deal with the fact Yeah, you've got 900,000 950,000 people You've given mm-hmm. jobs to But, but you know About, mm-hmm. about a, a huge percentage of them Are a, a moving boxes around Totally alienated mm-hmm. From the, what they're doing From each other From everything It's like, you know Marxist alienation <laughs> Exponential, okay and, and anybody who knows Who's ever worked in an Amazon warehouse So, you know Those are the kind of folks out there Though they want to keep the status quo and so but what, what we've got we've got even as insults talking about we got a 33% increase in suicide we got all kinds of increase in what people commonly call deaths of despair right opiate overdoses suicide we've got depression anxiety we've got like everybody out there more and more like emotionally hurting okay and do and be and having these disabled services. so how do you explain that if you know your society is fine and dandy <laughs> well you say like well they must it's not us it's not the society we've created it's like this these individual defects these medical that's what the medical model essentially is it's a disease model it's an individual defect model and any time that you could convince a population all right and this is really important politically you could convince a population that their misery their despair their their anxiety their anger their resentment has to do with something individually defective with them rather than something that they're reacting to societally, you know, they're less likely to rebel. They're less likely to like rebel by, you know, like withdrawing cooperation, rebel by, you know, boycotting, rebel by striking, rebelling in all the ways that people have historically rebelled against societies that feel dehumanizing, oppressive, alienating. And so we know, for example, like statistics all over the place show that the real relationship between um people's misery level is between the social political psychological economic variables as i was mentioning before there's studies that show you know the high the more depressed more if you're depressed and suicidal the high the more the association between that and poverty and and being all kinds of financial pains and legal pains is is high we also know Another real interesting thing for me that I wanted to kind of flesh out a little bit in that article, I don't spend much time on it, maybe we could talk a little bit more about here, is that finally, this really important study, this adverse childhood experience study that came out in the 1990s, that I see you shaking your head, you're aware of, is that it's really important study that came out, and for folks in your listeners, your listeners might know about it, but a lot of Maybe not all of them, is that what happened was that the uh, Kaiser Permiente, a, a couple of real dedicated researchers, took a look at over 17,000 people and found that people who had lots of adverse childhood experiences, so ex- for example, abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, and on. So if they had a lot of trauma, and a lot of our adverse childhood, they were high, far higher likelihood to later on in adult life to have all kinds of problems from morbid obesity, to IV drug use, to depression, to being suicidal, took on and on, to everything. So, so this became something, and it took a while to, to get out there in the mainstream of mental health professionals, but now it's pretty well known among mental health professionals who call themselves trauma-informed, which more and more mental health professionals do, that this is a hugely important reason why people are hurting out there but what what hasn't happened out there yet in our society at least from my point of view is people asking like why is there so much trauma and abuse and neglect going on in our society why is there for example in that Kaiser study they found that 25 percent of the 17th uh, of 25 percent of women in that study had been sexually abused when they were younger and that's reporting so we know it's probably a heck of a lot higher than 25 percent 30 percent of the men reported physical abuse so what the hell is going on there in the society that you've got that much violence going on well the next question should be is you've got a lot of unhappy um, disempowered angry resentful people because of their shame shitty jobs because of yep. their shitty lives and so when their kid in their family and kids are always by nature of being a kid you're gonna they're gonna do frustrating things and if you're depressed and you're frustrated and you're disempowered you're much more likely to be emotionally or physically abusive right so that last piece has not been tied up together but i think that that's pretty obvious i mean wouldn't you say molly
1: i would absolutely say that and bruce this uh interview is actually going to be coming out after i just i am doing a six part maybe seven i don't know episode shame toxic shame series because i think that a lot of this is down to toxic shame right we are a shame based society too in addition to all of these you know Um, economical problems that you're talking about with the shitty lives and and then not only that we have like these generations that are deeply rooted in toxic shame and you mentioned this adverse childhood experience study and for listeners we've talked about it it's like getting your a score they're called aces right and I read And yet again, just like the Joanna Moncrief stuff, you know, you always have the peanut gallery piping in saying like, oh, this isn't valid. And the thing is, it's good when studies are challenged, right? We need that. We need a society where findings are challenged. That's how we've gotten into this fucked up place right now without things being challenged. But the Kaiser Permanente um, research, I've read challenges that the people that they selected for this ACE study were white middle class people and you know while that's a fair criticism i also think if they found this in a group of mainly white suburban people can you imagine how deep this shit goes with people who are extremely vulnerable and and more diverse populations right so i just don't i don't really think that that criticism Holds a lot of weight. What do you think about oh, that? Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, I mean, if, if in some ways, that quote criticism makes the study even more valid. That you've got a population that at least financially is doing a little bit better than a lot of Americans. We're not talking. Go if they did the study on, like, for example, uh, indigenous people on uh, on a Lakota re- or Algal reservation or, or or Pine Ridge. Is you know, if they did it there, you know, where people are more financially impoverished where people are more feeling, you know, disempowered. Again, that's the reason why they're more likely to move into substances more, you know, more likely to do violence to themselves and other people. Because that's just again, that just should be common sense. I say should be because we've lost a lot of common sense in our society. Is that I mean, I just talk about it on a personal level, the more that I'm fucked up when I was in graduate school, not making much money dealing with assholes most of the time who had some control over my life, my level of frustration you know i'm on the road there you know i'm more likely to probably you know, you know not not be so patient with some asshole driving in front of in front of me right it's just it's just common sense and that's sort of that's why you need to have if you want to have parents who are not abusive who are not you know who are not neglectful it's hugely important that they be you know that they not be so out of control in their lives okay i mean because it's just really you have to really work your ass off if your life is really fucked up to keep your patients, right?
1: Precisely. And you know, obviously, this is not based on any kind of scientific study, because how do you even measure like just intuitive feelings? But I think everyone that's listening, could probably agree that you can just sense right now. I mean, even since I graduated, I graduated in 2008, right? And I've just sensed just a building anger, a building despair, right? You can see how much more quickly people are to snap at each other and dehumanize each other and you can just sense this building frustration and I think that we're looking at the wrong enemy as usual, right Bruce? Like the like you said, the powers that be, the people at the top get to just maintain the status quo while the rest of us are quabbling and hating each other down at the bottom and we have to mobilize and start speaking truth to power to call out some of these really harmful systems and ideas that are ruling us you know another profound point from your piece that i think isn't spoken about enough that i really want to dig into has to do with stigma you know when i first started my work and my podcast i spent a lot of time interacting within online recovery spaces primarily um with BPD, right? Because that's where I started this podcast back from the borderline and I really identified with the symptoms of BPD, but then as soon as I started researching all of this stuff and becoming critical psychiatry-pilled, <laughs> I started really just going, "Hmm, maybe I needed to investigate this." And I started to not find these labels very helpful, but many of the individuals within these um, recovery communities, right, from these these disorder labels, they believe that, that these labels actually reduce stigma and that we just need to normalize them, right? They'll talk about reduce the stigma of BPD. But in your article, you mentioned research that points to the fact that med- the medical model of psychiatry and its focus on these diagnostic labels actually creates more stigma. And you wrote, Examining 21 studies, um, Reed found that biological genetic causal, uh, casual beliefs are clearly associated with more negative attitudes. From 1970 studies in several industrialized countries have found that biogenetic casual causal beliefs. Sorry, everyone I can read today are related to negative attitudes. This has been demonstrated among patients and professionals, as well as general populations, biogenetic beliefs are related to perceptions of dangerousness and unpredictability, to fear and to desire for social distance. The research clearly shows that the brain disease conceptualization and the, quote, illness like any other anti-stigma campaign have resulted in greater uh, stigmatization. So this tracks Bruce, Bruce with much of what I've heard in my work, I've had various psych um, professionals reach out to me under the condition of anonymity, as I mentioned with you when we opened up, that there is an incredible amount of discrimination against patients with certain labels within psychiatric units and even emergency rooms. So for example, one psych nurse actually reached out and wrote to me and told me that if a new patient shows up in the psych ward that she works at with a label like BPD particularly on their records without even talking to this patient, right, the staff automatically red flag these patients with certain labels, especially ones like BPD, as having the potential to be dangerous and manipulative. So they don't even speak to this person. This could have been a, uh, an incest survivor who was had her life completely fallen apart and tried to seek help and was given a BPD label, right? So it's like, how on earth is this reducing stigma? And I have to say, most of the people, and this is no no shade, but I think it needs to be called out is that most of the people that I think that are very empowered by their labels that I run across are in pretty privileged positions, right? They, they, they don't have to face the, the deep stigma of their label. They aren't the person who finds themselves that maybe the man who was sexually molested as a child and then went towards the criminal route and and ended up in prison and got labeled with antisocial personality disorder or NPD or BPD, right? So I'd love to hear you talk about this stigma because I, every time I hear reduce the stigma, reduce the stigma, let's empower each other. I've always felt that that made me feel a little icky, and then hearing you speak about this in your article, I finally had research to prove why I felt like this felt icky.
2: Right, that's research. Is a a good, excellent psychologist. One of the people in my profession, I do have a lot of respect for a guy named John Reed and his group have done that kind of research, looked at it. It was a meta-analysis, looked at multiple studies and show like if you. You know if you're like for example a classic study is like you know you t- somebody's told like well somebody's gotten been a psychiatric hospital and and they told well they were there for biochemical medical genetic you know whatever reasons um versus like they were told like okay somebody ended up in a psych hospital because just some crappy traumatic things happened to him and they were passing through a crisis you know we know the person who's like you know like we know and again this should be you shouldn't even have to do research this is common sense that if it, it's less if you just think somebody's in crisis and they're to trauma you still like want would go on a date with them you'd still be friends with them but if you hear that somebody's got this medical disease that they're gonna have to be on medication for life and that they're unpredictable and they're violent without it it's just common sense and the research shows the common sense that you're gonna like more want to stay away from this person so in other words they get stuck stigmatized more but another i think another interesting thing for people in your audience and since we're a lot of young folks which i find i got to keep reminding myself when i'm talking to folks in their 20s and their 30s they don't know about some of the folks don't know that homosexuality was once a mental illness in um in the psychiatry's dsm and and just
1: in the 1970s right and
2: i think what's important to understand here and this is really is that psych Homosexuality in 1940s, 1950s was viewed as like a you know a sin or a crime, and so the, here's these psych- psychiatrists. They view themselves as more progressive by saying like, well, won't these people get treated better? Won't they be tolerated better if we make them into just having an illness for their homosexuality rather than viewing them as sinners? This is their their thinking. This is important for people to understand because this kind of thinking still exists today with other kinds of people. So of course what happened psychiatry was totally out of touch with the fact <laughs> that there was gay activism going on all over the place in the 1960s so some of your listeners might know about stonewall uprising in new york in 1969 i see you do if you're head shaking but i guess psychiatry wasn't hip to this and so what ended up happening was gay activists courageous gay activists who didn't care about like being you know being known to be gay they 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 protested at the American Psychiatric Association and it's one of the great political victories in gay activism history was that they got the American Psychiatric Association to get to abolish homosexuality as a mental illness and so there's a lot of interesting things about this whole that whole event that I talk about this event a lot because it proved this is why psychiatry got so much trouble in the 1970s everybody's laughing at them they going like wait a minute you can't protest and get rid of diabetes or cancer these illnesses can't be like medical Illnesses. There, there's something the hell else. But the other part. So there's a lot of a lot of things to unpack with this whole incident with homosexuality being a once viewed as a mental illness and and through protests getting rid of it. But the, I think for the purposes of what we're talking about right now what's what's really should be interesting for folks besides common sense besides the empirical researchers we have history here that shows once folks who are homosexual were viewed as this being just a normal human variation homosexuality right a normal human variation Boom, all over America over the last 50 years, one of the one of the only few positive things that's happened in my lifetime is people now, there's there's far increased the, the stigma of being homosexual, it still exists in some parts of America, but it's not, in, not on the coasts or major cities, and it's reduced dramatically. There's, and why has that happened? It's happened because not because you've made homosexuality into a medical illness. You've 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 made it into a normal human variation. And so for folks, and I talk to a lot of folks who've been diagnosed. With schizophrenia, and they've had, you know, hearing voices, and that's their whole argument. It's saying, hey, look, if you would only just view like my hearing voices the same, you know, as just a normal human variation, and you weren't so scared and angry of it. And we know if people aren't so scared and angry of it, they can deal with these things. Sometimes they're kind of interesting and instructive for folks. But once everybody gets scared of it, once people start to pathologize it, that's how people end up in mental hospitals. So this is the if you really want to destigmatize, right. you don't meditate. You take you take a look at these activities that maybe given the culture, given the society may create some discomfort, may create some dis- you know, inconvenience you know, tension, whatever you want to call it but you realize that's not enough evidence to call something an illness just because you're uptight around something and if you can demedicalize it and try to understand it as a normal human reaction, normal human variation, that's the way you really destigmatize things. Okay, so we know this again, to repeat myself we know this empirically from the research we know this logically, if you have any common sense and we know this historically what what more the hell do you want
0: (laughs) as they say
1: Bruce preach. I'm snapping like I'm at a poetry <laughs> reading right now, because it's so true, you know, and I read all about Stonewall. And I also, you know, many of my closest friends are gay men. And one of my really, really good friends is an older gay man who really scolded me on the whole Stonewall thing. And just realizing that just in the 1970s, we actually the societal belief was that, you know, homosexuality could be some kind of disorder or dysfunction. It just goes to show how bullshit all of it is. Same thing with hysteria, right? We used to think like psychiatrists used to think that women could be cured of their hysteria by some kind of like vibrator manipulations, right? It's all just so wild. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of James Davies. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's also very prominent in this critical psychiatry field. He wrote a book called uh, Cracked, and he really went and interviewed all of these um, uh, people that were involved in the DSM committees. And he talked about how he uh, interviewed some of the assistants that were in the room, even just like getting coffee and tea for some of these committee meetings. And he said that certain labels didn't make it into this. Version of the DSM because the people in the room said, "Wait, I do that, so this I, it can't be in here because I do those behaviors, right?" Mm. So of course, like now, I'm sure you have you know out and proud gay psychiatrists who would never want to—they're not disordered, you know. So we we can't be labeling that. And so I'm just—I find it fascinating and how many like moving goalposts there are. And then as soon as I. You one only has to start reading about the history of the DSM to start really going, that doesn't make sense. You do not have to be academic. You do not have to understand psychology. You just have to follow the money and read about the the process of how these things made it into this Bible of psychiatry. And you really start understanding. But I have a question for you, Bruce, because I have to say, I hear so much about you know especially in the critical psychiatry arena we all know all the fucked up parts and I know that I would love to know if you had total power today if I put you as the the king of the world and you could make anything happen in the realm of mental health and how we view psychological suffering and you could be the head of this new committee what would you do to to take us into the next phase I know that you know, I think it was, I can't remember who said it, but you know, before you burn something down, you have to have an idea of something better to replace it, right? What do you think is the future? Do you have optimism? And, and what would you do to, to transform this if, if you had total power tomorrow?
2: Well, um, boy, which where do I start? I guess the first. I thing, know, right? <laughs> the first thing that the first thing I think it's some real important for people to understand is that a lot of what how people are labeled as a mental illness is like for me basically bigotry. It has to do with what you know. People tend to tend to like anybody who creates discomfort for them, you know, they, they want to view them as defective. I mean, and this is, you know, there's racial bigotry, but there's also temperament, personality bigotry. And so, you know, one of the things uh, is, and this I don't is a little bit of an for simplification, but a lot of the basic reactions that people have to trauma and assaults out there are like what fight, flight, freeze, and now Finally people are talking more about fawning, you know, which is just complying, going along with. So fight, flight, you know, freeze and fawn. So a lot of mental health professionals, their basic reaction is more fawning. I went to school with all these people. Trust yeah. me, I know. They're like, yeah. you know, they naturally, you know, compl- more compliant with authorities. They're more, it's a lot of these folks get ahead by, you know, being excellent ass kissers. That's what they are. And so they they don't view their particular You know reaction to trauma And assaults as as being Mentally ill that's why you don't have Even though I talk about this more and more It's like if you you know if you have A family and one parent's complying And fawning with another Parent beating the crap out of the kid You know that seems like a pretty serious problem But there's no such thing in the DSM Called you know submissive Compliant disorder there's no such thing In the DSM called ass kissing Disorder why because that's what these Guys are and 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 I know this sounds pretty... (laughs) You know like crazy but people everybody out there has a potential to be bigoted okay everybody has a potential out there to be intolerant everybody and the problem with mental health professionals instead of saying like well these people are making me uncomfortable because they're not like me or because they're suicidal and i'm afraid if they kill themselves you know i'm going to get sued or they're you know and that and all that they're not they're not being honest with themselves and other folks and because and it's easier for them to just say to move into some control mode and that's really what mental health professionals are doing with their diagnoses and their treatments it's fear-based control mode so to to get back to try to answer your question is you you want to create if you really want to help people out there who are emotionally struggling going through these behavioral disturbances suicidal substance abusing doing some self-destructive things? Or they their personalities are ones that are creating a lot of discomfort from other people around them or or, or Their their reactions are, are, are you know, what you first want to do is you want to have them be around people? I know that sounds overly simplistic But you want to have people around them who aren't scared shitless of them who are not afraid of them I mean I say for myself like I'll just talk about myself here you know if I am you know miserable depressed anxious you know which I was a lot when I was hanging around with these mental health professionals in graduate school and you know I feel like shit you know you know life does not feel like a good deal anymore you know what do I want do I want to have somebody who's scared who's trying to compartmentalize me in some unscientific box trying to figure out whether I'm schizophrenic or anxiety disorder or some other invalid bullshit or do I want to have somebody who's not scared who is not trying to control Control me with some invalid scientific box who's who's actually now and not trying to control even my symptoms you know that let's say I'm filled with like resentment or anger or whatever they're not trying to control that okay so all of those things go together fear and control and they're not helpful therapeutically you want to have people who when you're when you're in that kind of state let's call called just being fucked up that you want to have people who aren't scared of you and hopefully that they're curious like wouldn't it be great to, if you're saying like you know I really feel like life is A shittier deal than maybe being dead that you'd have somebody go like really like tell me about your life I'm really interested why you've come to that who wasn't scared And part of the problem is is that a lot of people who are attracted to the mental health professionals are fear-based control freaks but even if they're not because of liability issues, because of a whole bunch of other issues, it takes a lot to transcend the sort of professional fears that people are stuck with. And that's why a lot of people who are ex-patients, psychiatric survivors, people with lived experience, whatever, people who would call themselves a psychiatrist, they don't wanna hang around with mental health professionals because they know what they're gonna deal with is fear and control. And that's the worst shit when you're fucked up, right? And so part of the general thing is how do you create a situation out there where people who are in states that are self-destructive, maybe are destructive, will just damage their important relationships. How do you have them around people who aren't scared of them, who aren't controlling, and aren't kind of psychologically violent with them? That's what we're talking about. Some of that already exists, okay? In the underground, um, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of you know, you'd have to go to certain parts of America, and certain you know places in Massachusetts. I know that exists in certain parts on the in Eugene, Oregon. There's there's people much more peer-to-peer genuine peer-to-peer support not co-opted bullshit peer-to-peer support real peer-to-peer mm-hmm. support where there's no hierarchy there's real mutual aid yep. going on those like things groups are like happening. recovery
0: groups right and so
2: you know i think and and if, if you can't find that part of what you want to do if i was telling this i'm telling people in your audience exactly what i would tell a friend if you're fucked up and you want to see a therapist you know because you're afraid you're you're just you know being self-destructive you're ruining all your important relationships Early on, you no matter how fucked you are you are, intuitively you could kind of feel whether that you're sitting across a person who's scared shitless at it with you, who wants to control you, or who's somebody who is curious, who's compassionate. Okay? So ultimately, and again, how do people heal? How do people heal is when they feel loved, they feel cared about, right? And if you can't, and, and, and people heal by also loving themselves, okay? By not just loving themselves, loving other people, even loving their dog, loving their cat. So that's a big part of how we, we really genuinely heal this fuel that's been created by our wounds and our trauma.
3: Even when we're
1: on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods.
2: And most of the other kind of treatments, not just the drug treatment, obviously the electroshock bullshit, but even a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapy treatments are all about control, all right? Okay, so I don't know if that gives you something to start with here in terms of (laughs) the idea of me being... Sure. I I held back my laughter in terms of anybody putting me in charge of anything out there, but I just (laughs) went with your fantasy here that I could be. (laughs) I mean...
0: I
1: think that we need more of this, right? Because we just have to call it out. And I've read um, another previous guest um, also that I spoke to. She was speaking a lot. She uh, pursues a lot of activism under the hashtags on Twitter, like uh, trauma, not PD, right? Like trauma, not personality disorder. And she speaks a lot. Her name's Dr. Jay Watts, and she's a psychotherapist as well. She speaks a lot of... um, a lot about CBT and DBT and how they are. It's like, it's like they're designed to get people's behaviors under control. And it's, I'm not saying that they're not helpful. Cause like, for example, I think specifically DBT, I found certain aspects of DBT helpful primarily because like, I know the creator of DBT, Marsha Linehan was a Zen master. She took a lot of, of her stuff from, you know, Buddhist philosophy and kind of finding like that middle way, like wise mind. I find some of her stuff very helpful, but you know, have you ever heard of the wounded healer archetype? Right, like right, because they right. it's it's spoken a lot about. Right, do you, do you know what that is? Maybe you could speak to uh, the listeners about well, what I, that I is. People have different definitions
2: of that, but I mean, mm. you know, for me, the wound. Anybody who's really going to be a good healer has been wounded themselves. Okay, so they yes. understand that pain, and they've they've done some enough healing to be able to not be scared of somebody else who's wounded. Right. right? Um, you know, right. a little bit, too, to backpedal a little bit, because I, I want to make clear that on the stuff like the cognitive behavioral therapy and the dialectical mm-hmm. behavioral therapy, you know, this I want to make this clear that I, I, it, this is the most mild of my embarrassments in my professions. They try to make something like a big deal when it's been known for thousands of years. That's that's pretty... I'm not too embarrassed by that. That's just trying to yeah, make it... Yeah, like it's
1: like the repackaging right, right. of, of like, room. old ideas. So,
2: so the idea that our passions can control us to be ape destructively. This is known to the stoics. This is known in my last book I read a lot about Spinoza. He borrowed some ideas from the stoics. This is known cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior. They're all about like how what do you do so you're not letting externalities like you know control you so that you can have some mm-hmm. more freedom. And I want to be mm-hmm. clear, I'm I'm into all of that stuff. I like all of that stuff, okay? But yeah. but I gotta tell you, if, I, if just me personally, maybe I'm especially wounded. <laughs> but if I'm <laughs> fucked up enough, that shit ain't gonna work. Okay. Yeah. And 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 so and, yeah. and some and so sometimes you sort of see people who have like these unbelievable amount of trauma and wounds. You know, they send them to these anger management things, and they give them all these cognitive behavioral all these kinds of techniques, and it maybe works when a, when a little bit if they're not particularly triggered but it it, mm-hmm. it, it, it it eventually it doesn't and then they feel even shittier about themselves again they feel like they're treatment resistant and, and as opposed yes. to being told like hey you know that all that stuff is fine it's good to be able to learn to modulate to discipline to emotionally regulate all those kinds of things are nice but if you got it, you want to really be able to care about this this core fuel of pain this wound this trauma and if you can yep. do something about that it's going to be much easier to do any of these you know, simplistic things. And I don't think, like I said, I don't think anything is such a big deal about all this CBT and DBT and all this kind of sort of stuff. It's pretty simplistic, simplistic stuff that works. It, it, it does work if you're not being overwhelmed by these fuels.
1: Precisely. You know, um, you know. Now that we're wrapping up, I want to finish off with one question, because I'm trying to put myself in my listeners shoes. I try so hard to do that. And I can imagine that quite a few people, especially ones who maybe weren't aware of some of this stuff, but even even those who are, a lot of my listeners are people who are in crisis mode. They're people who are either on wait lists to get into therapy if they have the privilege to be in a country where they have national healthcare, and they may be even on a wait list to try to get into this, to therapies that are based in some of these deeply problematic thinking models. And so not only that, or you have people here in the West who have no health insurance and there's no way they could even afford any kind of therapy and or you might have people listening who have a label and now they're going and they're on medication right now and they are like freaking out going now what do I do right like I'm so confused I feel so scared now after listening to Bruce and Molly talk about all this stuff right what advice do you have for someone who's listening to our conversation and is a little freaked out (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well yeah it, it's again it's a hard thing and this is when when i'm talking to a, 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 a general public of thousands of people i, I don't know exactly what i'm saying how is it going to take and that's what <laughs> it's easier to do yeah. one-on-one clinical individual like as i'm talking cause i'm talking to you right now that's who of i'm course. that's who i'm listening to that's who i'm talking to and 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 mm-hmm. so yeah as a as a you do have to make a judgment of like, what's too much for people to handle? Like, you know, what yeah. what is just too overwhelming? You know, like, I'm yeah. not going to use this, like, expletive language here. I'm hoping like a hundred bunch of four or five year olds are not listening to your show. They get <laughs> No, they're shot.
1: not. They are not. So, so, so. My show is marked as explicit like, very good, clearly. Good. So, yeah. so,
2: so that's, that's it. And, and like, I, my experience is that for a lot of what we're talking about here is highly validating to a lot of critical thinkers out there who just haven't had the, time that you have had and i've had to really go through the research and be able to articulate Mm -hmm. all these things but their intuition tells them Everything we've already said And they're just going Precisely. Fucking right I, That's what I felt And so Those are the kind of people I like to talk to Just to be able to help Validate What they've already Thinking about People yeah. who, and, and I'm assuming A lot of people Who are listeners To your show Are already At least halfway Three quarters Or maybe all the way there And But you're right For people who um, Still have bo- Have not You know Are still buying into These psychiatry As a respected, Respectable Respectively Have buy into the BS That they're A young science it's making great progress This is the shibboleth they repeat over and over again If they bought into this I, I guess this stuff is kind of shocking for them And I guess all I can do is apologize I'm sorry if I, I upset you And I hope you just shut me off and, I, and I'm sorry to Molly That maybe I cost her a few listeners on her podcast no. And I'm just, apologize no. if I was just too much For a bunch <laughs> of people out there
0: uh, you're, you are in a very safe space, Bruce, with a lot of listeners who have also been labeled too much their entire lives. So
1: you're in very, very good company. Trust me. Um, you know, I think it's beautiful what Bruce said, everyone, because the thing is, I think what I want for my listeners and I've, I've said this on other, uh, pot, this won't be the first episode, Longtime listeners hear about me talking about this stuff, but it's so powerful hearing you have so much knowledge and you just give so many more powerful points, so much evidence. I think that what I personally want for my listeners is to remember that mental health practitioners work for you you are interviewing them you know when you they're not a savior they are not a god they are and to just be aware of these models and the history behind them is already empowering and sometimes the truth is scary isn't it bruce you know like sometimes the truth is scary and off of what
2: you just said i tell people who come in and see me i still work with clients part-time and i say hey look if if you're feeling Uncomfortable with me, fire my ass! <laughs> Don't go, you yes. know? You can find somebody out there who you can be on the same wavelength. And therapy only works when people are on the same wavelength. And and, and it's just not. It's just. It's just the way it is. And so people should feel. Comfortable, you know, like my experience is no matter how depressed and how miserable you are You still have some contact with your intuition of saying like hey, hey this person, you know I'm I'm, I'm feeling like comfortable with this person or I'm not really
1: feeling comfortable
2: with them and and that's key It's key
1: and it's such a shame, right? Because I remember when I was in the United Kingdom. It's, it's to your to your point. I spent six years living in London, and the first person that prescribed me, uh, Citalopram slash Lexapro, was what a general practitioner, right? right? So it was like there was no other help that I that I uh, received. I guess a really good question that I've gotten asked, and I'd love to hear your response to it, is, save. and and sometimes people don't have the luxury of hopping around to find the right fit. Some people literally are given, this is the person you're working with, and that's it, right? Otherwise, you're going to be on another months-long waiting list to, to receive mental health care. So I really, really, I apologize to people that are on that, and it fills me with a lot of empathy, and I've been there. But for those people, Bruce, who are... Um, privileged enough to be able to quote-unquote shop around for a therapist. What are some good questions that if you were someone in crisis mode and you wanted to ascertain whether or not because i i know i was that person four years ago where i showed up and i was just like please help me you know like you are the be all end all you're the expert just tell me what's wrong with me and now if i if i was looking for a therapist i would want to ask some more questions i would want to find out if we were a good fit i would want to kind of find out what framework they viewed psychological suffering through so if you had someone you very much cared about come to you and you couldn't work with them personally and they were trying to find someone what was a good fit what are some good questions my listeners could ask some potential um, or even parents listen to my podcast as well who are trying to help their child how would you interview a potential therapist or a mental health practitioner what would you look for And then I'm going to ask you what are red flags, but I think we already know that. So what would you look for and what are some good questions to ask? Well,
2: I think some good questions, you know, that you can, you can ask or like, you know, just asking about how seriously they take these diagnoses, that's going to tell you a lot right at the very minimum if some of the some mental health person i think a lot of mental health professionals you know I'm, I'm 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 cutting up on my field pretty good here but i think most of them at least most psychologists and social workers within their within their with their clients they don't take too seriously you know they That's they're, been my experience they too. Diagnoses. they have to they have to use them to, for their insurance mm-hmm. companies to be able to get third yep. party payments. So <clears throat> at the minimum if you got somebody who's taking these diagnoses seriously it's like uh-oh they're really out of touch and and so I think part of the, um, you know, I think maybe, you know, more important than questions, because Pete is, 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 is that if you go in there in that, in that first session and you put out, you try to be as honest as you can just about who you are and don't, don't try to protect that person, you know, not try to, try to like not, I mean, part, part I think what happens to folks is they're afraid they're afraid they're going to get judged. And they're afraid they're going to be viewed as really, you know, somebody that that doctor doesn't want to work to work with. And so I think the the more that you could just put out, be authentic about who you really are and watch, watch the best you can, like your reactions, like even like in your own head, think about like, well, what the hell would you be doing if this is your first date here? If you just met somebody on Bumble or one of these apps or something like uh, I think
0: my (laughs) listeners struggle with first dates too and end up with assholes so asshole therapist asshole boyfriend check check
2: well you got to get better in touch with your intuition yeah and 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 it's sort of like and 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 again not to shame people it's like it's hard when you're fucked up the more depressed you are the more disconnected you are from your intuition and it's scary you're in an environment somebody's got all these freaking diplomas on their wall and blah 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 but the best um the best you can you know do in there in terms of like is 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 more than more than any kind of questions per se that you're going to get. Maybe you're going to get you can get some good answers, but still they could be incongruent. You know they could be like somebody putting out stuff that sounds good but isn't really who they are. Is that what you want to do? And you know you go the first session, and you, and if your intuition is not great, you go on a couple of sessions just like you go on a couple of dates, right? And you're just like yeah. feeling what their reactions are, and eventually. You know that therapist is going to give themselves away eventually. <laughs> if I'm, you know, people are talking long enough, and and from my point of view, I ch- I tell folks early on, like I try to make myself as transparent as possible. I try to like have these people know what the fuck I'm thinking in general about clinical work, mm-hmm. and in gen- and then more specifically about who they are, and that they can they can react. And I always ask folks, you know, if, if what you know is is what I'm saying here, feel like it's on the money, or is it... so if you're getting a sense too that they're comfortable with you, that they're willing to be in a Collaborative relationship. Yeah, I know a lot. I've been doing this shit for a lot, like a lot of years. I know a lot of the, the, the studies and the theories and stuff like that. But that doesn't matter. You still, it's not going to work unless you're in a collaborative relationship where somebody has the freedom to say, hey, that's an interesting thing you're saying, but it fucking is worthless for me. You know, <laughs> that, 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 that's, so to, to, to sense that level of a person's not need to control the relationship, their, their lack of fear, to sense those kinds of things. All right. Um, and then you know just generally what kinds of you know questions they're asking you know are they when you walk out of that first hour do you feel like somebody got at least some sense of who the hell you were they were they had you walked out of there feeling like they knew you a little bit more or were they just completely focused on your fucking symptoms you know is that all they were doing like were they asking you a whole session on a scale of one to ten what's your chances of knocking (laughs) yourself up were they just asking that stuff or or were they asking or they were trying to discover like what's your life what are your relationships Relationships, what's with you? Are you still connected with your family? Have you what? You know that kind of thing where they're trying to like Mm -hmm. learn how much curiosity they, They have about you So those are the kinds of things I would tell folks to try to kind of get a feel if they want to give somebody a chance
0: That's incredibly helpful Bruce. Thank you for that
1: and my last question for you is what's happening if anything in the field of psychology right now that excites you the most that gives you the most hope for the future
2: Wow, you threw me with that. You know, it's funny you asked that because I, I just was in a bookstore the other day and I went over to psychology section. <laughs> I was going, jeez, <laughs> there's nothing here that interests me. Like the folks I know who have written, you know, for a while, even a few years ago, there were at least some critical psych- psych- psychology books. There were books by the journalist Robert Whitaker on his books on the anatomy of mm-hmm. an epidemic. and man- So these were, had major publishers. They were there, but they weren't even there anymore. And I just saw stuff that was just the same old kind of religious propaganda and same old dogma. And I'm sure there's people reviving some of the stuff like on trauma. So that's happening out there. People at least mm-hmm. talking about it. Unfortunately. Like Peter
0: Levine, Gabar Mate, yeah, yeah. right? So like people I love the work about,
2: of they're these reviving people. it, which is, again, hysterical because for thousands of years people knew how important trauma was. Even Freud knew how important trauma was. And they buried this. Mm. The bastards buried it. And now we're having to. Un- no way. And we're having to unbury it, uncover it again um and and some of the people out there who really were were part of the unburying it like it's now common for therapists to talk about being trauma informed but you know, I, I sometimes ask people, "Well, what the fuck does that mean, trauma informed?" <laughs> it just means, like, you know, in some of these books, it means like, "Well, you're supposed to get EMDR or yoga or some shit." Well, none of these things. I'm, I'm not knocking any of these things, but they're missing yeah, yeah. really the core, really, of like what trauma is and what really is healing. Because unfortunately, a lot of these people in the profession are not equipped to offer what it what it really is. To get messy mm-hmm. with somebody, to talk about, to deal with stuff that's yeah. really scary, to can maintain yes. your Fearlessness and curiosity and compassion. So on the one hand, I guess that's a good thing. People are at least talking about trauma So that's great. We're not just talking about some phantom neuro, you know, neurobiological bullshit, you know, so that's Mm -hmm. a good thing
1: You know I read a lot of I feel the same way with you once I I started my journey. And of course, I read all the very basic, you know, self-help books and all the intro psychology stuff. And then very quickly, you realize they're just like regurgitating the exact same ideas. And so I've found refuge in myth and mysticism and depth psychology. I love the work of Marion Woodman. I'm reading uh, her book right now, Addiction to Perfection. And she speaks a lot about, you know, um, that you can't lead someone through a place that you haven't been yourself. And it reminds me of, uh, people that have written to me and said that, you know, they were basically locked up in a psych ward the moment that they were talking about suicidal ideation with their therapist. Right. And I know it's because it touches that maybe that practitioner's death urge, right? Like for me, like, you wouldn't catch me dead going to probably like the average everyday like 28 year old therapist that's just out of school, right? Like when I was in my master's program, I was going to school and I would like read the other, I did an online course and I was like reading the postings by some of these people that were in my program and some of them were clearly very religious, mostly like fundamentalist Christian type people. Right. And the ways that they would speak about, you could tell that some of them had, had lived the most sheltered possible Mm -hmm. lives. Right. And, and I just thought, God, you have these, me, I was in this program after having, you know, I have sexual abuse in my past grooming. I worked in the sex work industry for a while. I have been to the depths of suicidal ideation. You know what I mean? So it's like, I have family that has been at extremely poverty stricken, have like generations of trauma in my family. And there's almost nothing that could scare me at this point. Like if someone told me, like, I I understand those feelings deeply, but the amount of people that are out there in these helping professions that are actually scared of the people that they're working with really makes me sad. You know, it's, it's so, so saddening. I think you're on
2: something really huge. I mean, the people like when i'm helping folks i mean for me the fact that i've been depressed i've been anxious i've been oppositional i've been all of those things you know and and to that point you know for that population of people who have been like hallucinating delusional and labeled schizophrenia schizophrenic i haven't been in that place and and so over the years I've become, through activism, through becoming friends with psychiatric survivors, I've become like more un, un, intellectually understanding a lot of the processes mm. that happen there. But am I the best therapist for those people? No, I don't think so. I, I think, and I yeah. tell them all the time that they would be better off being with somebody who, who did hear those voices, who did have these bizarre yes. delusions and all that stuff. Because intellectually, I'm not afraid of them. Because, you know, I understand a lot of stuff, but since I wasn't there emotionally myself, I don't think I'm the best therapist there. Now, thankfully for me in my clinical practice, I've been fucked up in a million other different ways. So you know, like I totally understand why people don't want to pay attention in classrooms, people are pissed off at yes. authorities. There's a lot of these things that you know, I've been there. So you're and that's the other like the scary part too about the profession. You've got people out there who if, if you've never really experienced anything, so you haven't been whatever you want to call it. Wounded heroes is a good good term that you were using is that th- th- mm-hmm. those are those are invaluable Okay in terms of being like like what you just said here being able to like not be afraid of that Because you were there and you survived mm-hmm. and you and now you have some wisdom and some knowledge about like what it's like to be in there where where where's a problematic directions you could go with a certain state where are beneficial directions and that and that's and that's really usually helpful what you're saying and the last point of what you're saying is that for a lot of people out there if they can't find a professional therapist don't don't hesitate. I know this is like totally taboo of all the taboos. i things that I've said here in this talk with you here This may be one of the most it's like there's plenty <laughs> of people out there without any freaking degrees who are damn good therapists And it may are your right. barista Maybe you're whoever maybe the person who does your hair. I don't know, you know There's there's people mm-hmm. out there who might be mm-hmm. better at least less scared more curious and without f- Liability fears and all that kind of stuff and you know part of like in I'm being Half silly here, again, back to your Giving me the fantasy, if I'm king in the world I would probably take most yeah. of my profession And turn them into cops, they'd probably be better Cops than most of the cops out there, they'd be less Physically violent, and I'd move a lot of Your unemployed uh, improv Performers out there <laughs> Into into my profession That would, if I could just wave a magic wand Because you'd have a lot of people who would be more present A lot of, more fearless, a lot more Curious kind of folks out there mm. So so again, the, the answer of trying To find people who are helpful to you and our society people are socialized and trained that the responsible thing is to find somebody but I will tell you here that there are more people listening to you I know there's li- because you don't have an individual relationship with somebody Molly that your listeners out there there's limits to how hugely helpful we are but yeah. I got to tell you I've talked to some folks since I found out about you and got them to listen to your shows and they're telling me it was like ten times more powerful than any of their therapists that they had okay so so yeah. So there's a lot of ways that people Can get help and again it's about trusting your Instinct trusting your intuition if they're Listening to you and they're feeling more whole They're feeling more energy hey they're getting Therapized here whether and maybe And they're not you know (laughs) good things are happening
0: They're getting
1: Therapized I Love that I'm happy to Therapize you know and I realize that My my help thank you for Saying that and also thank you for sharing my work Bruce that means a lot you know and I'm very honored to have, I've had psychiatrists in the NHS, in the UK, reach out to me and say that they recommend my podcast to their clients, right? So it's like, it's pretty cool. And I'm very honored by that. And. It, you brought up something that I thought was really interesting because you said maybe your hairstylist might be a better therapist and I was like holy shit are you, you might be psychic because when I was at the depths of my suicidal ideation, she's now one of my best friends, I've been pretty nomadic because I had the tendency to think oh this city is the reason I'm depressed. Let me move, right? So I've like jumped around and then no matter where you go, there you are, right? So uh, unfortunately, I couldn't run away from myself or in my own bullshit, but I did find myself in LA and it's almost like wherever I went, I end up making really good friends with whoever does my hair. And I wondered that, and it's like because hairstylists listen to people all the time, yeah. right? And my therapist, and she's now one of my closest friends, her name's Sterling, when I was suicidal in LA, I, she was one of the only people I opened up to and guess who ran and got us a burger, came over to my house and she said, do you want me to just come over and sit Mm -hmm. with you? So you don't have to be alone. Right. And she got me a burger and a milkshake and she came and sat with me in my backyard for like three hours when I just wanted to die, you know, and that is still, and she was not afraid. And she was talking to me about how she had been suicidal. You know what I mean? She'd been labeled with bipolar, bipolar two, all these different things her entire life. And that was still to this day, one of the most healing things that anyone's ever done to me and done for me and to me, I suppose. Um, and I want, if anything, for listeners to realize exactly what you said, Bruce is like therapy doesn't have to be what the, what society tells you therapy is. You can find therapy in so many different things, you know? Absolutely. Ah, oh, so beautifully put. Well, Bruce, thank you for this conversation. I think that's a gorgeous uh, note to end. And for some reason, I don't know why you talk about listening to your intuition. And I've done a whole series on this because that's my theory too. I believe that A lot of our suffering is due to our disconnection from our gut feeling, right? Early on in childhood, knowing something was wrong and not being able to say no because that was an adaptive thing. Um, But then it becomes maladaptive. So my biggest healing has come from reconnecting with my intuition. That's why I find myth and mysticism so beautiful and helpful for me because these are people who were too much creative and even sometimes burnt at the stake, right? For their too muchness throughout history, but they knew that something was wrong. And they followed that. And that's why I find um, mystics to be incredibly inspirational for me and helpful because they were big, they had big feelings, they were too much, and maybe they heard voices and saw things um, and they found outlets in that. And the, the quote that's coming up for me, and I don't even know who said it, it might have been E.E. E. Cummings, but he said, You know, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. Mm-hmm. And I love that quote because I feel like even though we're, uh, throwing around the F word a lot, I feel like both of us are are looking up at the stars and we're trying to to shed some light on all of this darkness because it can be, it can be really easy to get down, you know. But all we can do is what revolutionaries have done throughout the ages, right? Is like speak truth to power, and nobody can fucking tell me what to say on my own damn RSS feed.
3: So fuck you. <laughs>
1: Well Bruce, what's next for you? I like to always like uh, end with my my guests. What um What's next for you? What are you working on right now? Other than this incredible article that you just put out? Are you working on anything else? And how can my listeners find you and, and dive into more of your work? Well,
2: it, my uh, website is brucelavine.net, so they're welcome. There's a ton of free stuff out there. I'm sure it's a lot of folks in your audience, not everyone has a, a money to buy a book or anything like that, so there's a lot yeah. of articles there. There's videos and stuff like that for them if they want to go there. Um, I just put out a book in 2022 called A Profession Without Reason, which was about uh trying to take a look using spinoza the uh, dutch philosopher radical enlightenment and free thinking to kind of take a Mm -hmm. have a lens to look at psychiatry for one reason was that i've just found that the whole profession was so interest so boring that to try to make it more (laughs) interesting i needed to kind of like have some kind of foil some kind of lens to look at it so that Mm -hmm. came out there so right now i'm not since that now you know i've that's, that's that's the 5th uh, nonfiction book I've, I've put out there so i'm not i'm not working on any book right now i'm just kind of talking about that book or talking about the kinds of stuff we're talking about right now and and i write as people will see in my website lately i'm writing a lot for uh counterpunch which is a kind of anti-authoritarian left publication and mad in america which is the webzine for dissident uh, mental health professionals that was Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also ex uh, psychiatric survivor activists and documentary filmmakers. So it's the go to place for people who aren't buying into the kind of medical model bullshit. And 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 I write for other places too. Over the years, I've written for. I used to write a lot more for your more traditional liberal kind of zines like Alternate and uh, Truth Out and so on. But one of the things that's <laughs> Is that these guys have are like more Terrified of getting cancelled For like talking about some of the things That we're talking about here which is a topic for a whole Other show but yeah, you know right. again If people want to learn more about what I'm up to All they have to do is just go to that Um I don't have Subscribers because I haven't got my shit together To do that kind of thing I don't have a <laughs> Patreon account <laughs> I haven't got my shit to ge- I haven't got my shit together <laughs> and all that stuff You know and
1: I like I think you're working On enough right
2: right right <laughs> right 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 <laughs>
1: Oh Bruce, thank you so much for being here today. It really means a lot for me, and I know that um, my listeners are going to get so much value from this conversation. So thank you for being here, Bruce. Thank
2: you, Molly. It was a pleasure, a real pleasure.
1: I
0: hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. After we finished our interview, I called Bruce back to thank him for the conversation, and we just had like another 45 minutes of discussion and his praise of the work that I'm doing meant so much to me because all I want to do is fight for a better reality a more balanced approach of treating psychological suffering and it was my honor to bring someone like Bruce to the ears of my listeners The work that he has done is so incredibly important and often this work is being done in the shadows and it deserves to be brought to light. If any of this has interested you today, I will be linking the original article that drew me to Bruce's work his website, as well as a link that will take you to various other articles that he's written that you can check out for free. I'll also be linking to some of his more recent books if you'd like to dive even deeper into the work that Bruce is doing. It feels important to tie all of this up with, this is not a black and white issue. This conversation does not mean psychiatry is bad, let's throw it out. Medication is bad, let's throw it out. What it means is that we need to come together. We need to challenge some of these deeply held beliefs and find a more balanced approach. We need to get real about the damage that a purely biological focus on mental health has had on us culturally as a society. We are a society of people living with no meaning believing that our disorder and dysfunction lies within our broken brains, rather than a meaningless society that needs to really take serious steps to address inequalities and imbalances. We need to understand that we're living in a society that is incredibly intolerant to differences. Thousands of years ago, people who experienced certain things that we see as mental health symptoms now would have been seen as spiritual leaders or people with deep connections to their intuition. And it's arguably the pathologizing of these things that drive people into the deepest, darkest, and most isolating experiences of mental illness. We need balance. We need to speak the truth to power. And you, you might be wondering, what can I do? What can little old me do to change this? This feels horrible. Or maybe you're thinking, like me, three years ago, I was on six different psychiatric medications and was without health insurance and had to go off them cold turkey. I was angry at this system. But now I've understood that we can't just burn something completely down. We can't label anything as all bad. But we do have to look some uncomfortable truths in the face. And that's what I hope that this episode will have achieved, opening your mind to different perspectives and hopefully allowing you to better advocate for yourself and the people that you love who are seeking mental health treatment. There are absolutely incredible practitioners out there. Look at Bruce. He's out there fighting the good fight and still providing treatment to people. It was Mr. Rogers that said, look for the helpers. The helpers are out there, and they're out there trying to fight for a better reality. So for now, let this conversation marinate in your mind for a while, and start to develop the bravery to maybe challenge some of these deeply held beliefs, and allow the knowledge that you've gained today help you better advocate for yourself. If that's all this can accomplish for just one person, this interview, an episode, and all of the work put into it will have been well worth it. All right, everyone. That's it for the free portion of Back from the Borderline. This was a long one today, admittedly. (laughs) But out of all the things you could spend your time on, out of the zillions of content options available, you chose to be here with me but most importantly, you chose to show up for yourself. Next up is the back half of the episode available to paying subscribers only. So if you're tuning in from the public Back From The Borderline feed, you'll get to hear a preview. Look at you. But to unlock full episodes, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can become a premium submarine. To sign up today, check out the link in the show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. All right. Let's get into it. Since today was such a heavy episode, I thought we would take the opportunity to do some more listener questions for today's premium portion. So let's hear from our first voicemail from Asia.
4: Hi Molly, it's Asia, one of your premium submarines. I was wondering if you can maybe do an episode on decision paralysis. Recently, I've been struggling a lot with making decisions and I feel it is linked to the sort of symptoms that we experience. Um, because I always look at both options, like if it's an either or decision, I can imagine both options and because both options are a possibility. I don't seem to be able to make a decision for either, especially because I can never be 100% certain that it is the right choice. And I want to be 100% certain, but I can't because there's always another option. And it's generally for big decisions, but the more dysregulated I become, the more smaller decisions are also affected by this. Like when I'm doing poorly, I even struggled to decide what to eat for lunch um, because of this decision paralysis. So, yeah, I would really like if you could deep dive into that and we could discuss that. That would super greatly interest me.
0: Oh, Asha, I relate to this so much. Analysis paralysis is the act of overthinking a problem so that a decision or action is never taken in effect paralyzing the outcome. That's why people call it analysis paralysis. It's a compulsive act of overthinking about a decision to the point that a choice never gets made. It's like we're frozen and paralyzed. Analysis paralysis is the rumination component of decision-making. Everyone can experience a certain amount of analysis paralysis every now and then, and especially when they have to make a really hard decision. I don't know if other people in other parts of the world know this phrase, but there is a phrase, damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? So it's like, no matter what choice I make, there are scary potential consequences. And I think it's really important to first point out the fact that this is just part of life. But when we talk about what Asya is describing of this becoming such a prominent issue in her life, that it's impacting even simple choices about what to eat. And I relate to this so much, Asya. But here's the thing. People don't realize often the connection between being exposed to chronic invalidation in childhood especially the kind of chronic invalidation that occurs within toxic and abusive relationships, even in our adult lives, people who've experienced this chronic invalidation are much more likely to experience the analysis paralysis phenomenon than an average non-invalidated person. So what is chronic invalidation? We have to understand that first. Chronic invalidation refers to a long-term pattern of dismissing ignoring or negating a person's feelings thoughts or experiences chronic invalidation occurs when an individual's emotions and perspectives are consistently downplayed invalidated or trivialized and trivialized means like it's not a big deal right like laughing at someone when they're crying being like oh my god you're overreacting right so this happens often in close relationships or social environments work environments chronic invalidation can have a really seriously detrimental effect on someone's mental and emotional well-being. It's like psychological abuse. This kind of invalidation can take a few different forms, and I want to explain to you kind of how it can present itself, and I want you to think, is this something that you experienced a lot in a certain important relationship in your life, in childhood, in a work environment, etc.? So, Invalidation can look like dismissal of emotions. All right, everyone, you know what that means. That's it for today's free version of Back From The Borderline. To unlock the full version of this episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click premium submarines, or you can click the link in the episode description as well. Not only do my premium submarines receive loads of additional premium content each month, but the support of my subscribers also allows me to focus on podcasting full-time and invest more in research and production quality. If you're not ready to become a premium submarine, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or better yet, sharing this episode with someone you care deeply about. That's my favorite kind of promotion. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, don't forget to follow Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app. The full version of this episode includes a detailed description of the different types of chronic invalidation we can experience and some practical tips on how to break free from analysis paralysis. So don't forget to become a premium submarine so you can unlock the rest of this conversation. But for now, never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos, and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. I'll see you next Tuesday.